CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the May 1st edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Leggett. Uh 2023 is obviously flying uh, past us. Uh, we're already in the month of May. Hard to believe. I got a lot I want to talk with the panel about today, so I want to get right to introducing them. Uh, Patricia Murphy is my Monday partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. She's with us today. You all know Patricia is a political reporter but also writes the Political Insider column, which appears two days a week in the uh, newspaper and which you can read online at AJC.com. I guess you have to be a subscriber to do that. She also oversees the jolt at uh, AJC.com, which is a great daily source of uh, um, a variety of items in political news. uh, Patricia, I'm particularly grateful you're with us because you're coming out of a very busy few days. You were in Chicago, I, I think, on Friday, maybe Thursday as well, for a conference of political journalists. Then you flew to Washington to attend Saturday night's White House correspondence uh, dinner. And, uh, you know, I'm really happy that you were able to have the find the energy and the time to be with us today. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. I always have the energy and time for this show. That is unquestioned. And yes, you do need to be a subscriber to read The Jolt and the AJC, but we have a special right now, 99 cents for the first three months. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much. I am sure the circulation people at the newspaper are happy to have uh, you say that. A little bit later in the show, I actually want to ask you and the rest of the panel about remarks not only made by President Biden about the importance of a free and independent press, but also by um, Roy Wood Jr., who was brought in, of course, to provide the comedy uh, for the show. But he also had some very serious remarks about uh, the importance of the press. So we'll do that a little bit uh, later in the show. Uh, Raul Bali is back with us. He's the politics reporter at WABE. How are you, Raul? I am doing great. And and. I have to mention my favorite thing lately in the jolt is the dog or the pet of the day and a reminder that I need to send Patricia a picture of my dog. So, <laughs> Well, Raul, Raul um, you know, we're now in a sort of, I mean, there are a lot of things that could be about to happen in Georgia politics, but what's occupying most of your time right now? What are you, what are you paying attention to? I, a good thing to ask you as we get the show started. Um, right now, Fulton County Commission, uh, the city of Atlanta, they've got a city council meeting later today, and MARTA um, for different mm. things, whether it's the uh, uh, streetcar extension um, that, that some of my audience have cared about, the hospital sales tax that's being thrown out of there by, thrown out there by uh, um, uh, Fulton County Commissioner Bob Ellis. Um, so those are kind of things that, that I'm keeping an eye on. Obviously, we're in a holding pattern for what's going on at the Fulton County Courthouse and with other things. And you know what? We got about another week of bill signings 
from Governor Kemp, including the state budget. Yeah, absolutely. That's going to be interesting to watch. Leo Smith uh, is back with us. Leo, a former official with the state Republican Party, left them. He's been a Republican consultant for some time, but he also formed his own company, Engaged Future, as a government relations firm. And most recently, to add to your portfolio, Leo, uh, you're one of the people brought together by the mayor's office to act as a citizen advisory group on the Atlanta Police Training Center, right? That's correct. And that uh, South River Forest and Public Safety Training Center Community Task Force, big title so far, is still very formative. And uh, I look at it as a revisioning and repurposing conversation that needs to happen to make a stronger democratic republic as we continue to do the work of creating a more engaging and peaceful democratic republic. And we will uh, talk a little bit about that as the show goes on today. And I'm very happy to have back with his former state senator, Jen Jordan, uh, who um, is an attorney and uh, who I just learned today. I know you said you don't like to promote it, Jen, but I did not know that you and Mara Davis a longtime veteran Atlanta media personality, do a podcast together. Yeah, it's called uh, Vote Her. So the whole point is you say voter. And um, really, it came out of COVID, our friendship, you know, our Twitter friendship. And um, I think we've done about 60 different episodes. And Patricia and Raul have both been on the podcast and um, sometimes it's interesting and sometimes it's a little bit in aim. We talked about UFOs the last time. <laughs> it's one of those things where Mara basically just decides kind of what she wants to ask questions about in a given week. And then we kind of just roll with it. But it's but it's been a real, really a lot of fun. I, I think I, I really feel embarrassed. I was not aware of it. I'm going to start listening because Mara Davis has been around for a very long time. She is wonderful. And uh, so the two of you together, I think, would be great. Uh, Patricia, I I do want to start with this really tragic story um, out of uh, Cleveland, Texas. A a family with a young child, baby, trying to get their baby to sleep, goes next door to the neighbor, He's shooting his semi-automatic weapon off in the backyard. It's 11 o'clock or so at night. And they ask him, please, could you stop shooting your gun? It, it's our, We're having a hard time getting our baby down. He comes over to the house, shoots and kills five people in the house, including an eight-year-old uh, child. And, and I have to say that when I read the first um, stories that came out and and read the details of how it unfolded. It, it was one of the most heartbreaking stories I have seen in a very, very long time. I found it hard to read how tragic this story was. And, and we know it comes at a time when there have been any number of shootings in recent uh, weeks in which people who find themselves in the wrong place at the wrong moment have been shot and killed, shot and injured. And, and Patricia, I know the go-to position for many people is this is another example of why we got to crack down on especially automatic weapons. But it goes beyond that to me. There is something fundamentally wrong with what's happening in terms of how people process anger and fear in this country today 
as well. Patricia? Yeah, we've been hearing from um, Atlanta law enforcement officials for a very long time that arguments that used to end in maybe a fist fight or, uh, you know, a wrestling match at a bar, because so many people have guns now, um, a gun is brought out immediately and people are shot over very, very incidental situations. There was a pool party in Buckhead last year where um, some sort of an argument happened in the middle of the day on a Sunday and multiple people were shot um, because there was a gun around. We have seen um, multiple incidents in Atlanta of road rage turning into somebody chasing the other person down and then shooting them. It it is just, um, it does seem to be this really sad and dangerous and toxic combination of um, people feeling disconnected from their neighbors and kind of fellow humans, um, people having this residual level of anger that can just fly out um, almost without warning, and then easy access to weapons. Um, you combine all of those things, there's really no way to test for somebody or to scream for somebody who has a bad temper unless they've done something before. Um, and so police officials tell us that the thing that that would help a great deal is to um, crack down on easy availability of weapons, whether they're stolen out of cars, whether they're accessed in the home and they should be locked, because that would take a minute to at least get it out of a safe. Um, some Many things have got to happen. Not just something needs to happen, but many, many things need to happen. Um, and easy access to guns is just one piece of it. Leo, I think what Patricia just said is, is really important. Um, yes, uh, typically, the more liberal the Democratic position on it is, we got to crack down, especially on automatic weapons. We've got to have more gun safety, uh, gun control laws in this country. Uh, Republicans say it's not guns, it's people. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, it's as Patricia says, it's much, it's complicated right now. When we see how rage is now being turned into violence. Yeah, certainly, Bill and Patricia, uh, it is very, very complicated and is nuanced, and it's going to take sort of an all of government, all of society sort of approach. You know, as far as where I can lead, uh, my you know involvement in in schools, um, Atlanta Classical Academy, for instance, we've decided to re-emphasize the importance of having young people understand the role of social media and dehumanizing each other, creating more connectedness in our civil dialogue as a way of uh, understanding the elements of conversation and how that can bring peace. Um, those kinds of conversations need to be happening at the elemental level because people have lost those skills and in, in while they are, as Jonathan Haidt, the sociologist, talks about um, being dehumanized by the disconnectedness social media engagement brings us and the dehumanization there, the humanization there. So that's important. And Republicans will also pivot and say also that we need more enforcement of current laws and that in many of these cases, um, like in Texas, um, had uh, that particular gentleman uh, been uh, really dealt with by law authorities, they feel that uh, the enforcement of gun laws and immigration laws in that case would uh, have reduced that likelihood. Well, all right, Leo, I mean, Jen and then uh, Raul, let me bring you in on just what uh, uh, Leo just talked about. Texas Governor Greg Abbott yesterday 
um, announced a $50,000 reward for information on this shooter who is at large. FBI says they have no clue where he might be. And they're a a manhunt underway, more than 200 officers involved. But here, uh, Jen, is also the release that the governor's office put out. I'll just read the lead. Governor Greg Abbott today announced a $50,000 reward for a Texas Department of Public Safety top 10 fugitive who was in the country illegally and killed five illegal immigrants in a shooting Friday night in Cleveland, Texas. Um, Jen, there are people who are very critical today of uh, Abbott uh, deciding he had to characterize these people the way he did. Yeah, talk about dehumanization. I mean, what Leo was just talking about in terms of social media. But with respect to the enforcement of laws, let's be clear, there aren't any. (laughs) I mean, you can't pass any laws. And I will tell you that um, the last time I was in the General Assembly, there were actually efforts that were being pushed, particularly by Senator Mullis, who was at the time the chair of the Rules Committee, um, to pass a law that basically said that you know, local municipalities, cities, counties can't even pass ordinances um, that would prevent someone from shooting guns on their property. And so it's that kind of stuff. What very little we have in terms of the ability um, to regulate guns or, or to make things safe for people. Most of that has been rolled back. Um, and to be quite frank, after the last Supreme Court case, um, you know, regarding guns and and, and a New York statute or ordinance, um, my guess is, is that there is very little um, that we can really do um, to actually, you know, do anything with respect to it. So um, so there aren't any laws to enforce, to be quite frank. And um, at this point in time, I mean, you know, when there are women and children just being gunned down for no reason and you have a governor basically come out and just say, well, you know, they really weren't one of us. I mean, we we all need a little bit of a gut check with that one. Raul? You know, when I when I talk to, you know, law enforcement and, and specifically, you know, higher levels of law enforcement, in the end, they tell me it's going to it's going to come down to what gun owners do, the, the people who own guns, um, whether they own the guns legal or, or illegally, um, you know, whether it's, you know, bringing in a gun in, into a fight or just. Um, you know, th- that's what it's going to come down to is, is what gun owners do because, uh, you know, covering the, the legislature, gun, gun legislation is really not going to be moving, um, uh, at the state legislature. I mean, I, I, I don't think there was any that moved this year, even through, even beyond a committee. So, um, it, it really is going to come down to what gun owners do and <laughs> if there are Republican efforts to do. Um, move any legislation on guns. Patricia, I want to bring you back, of course, but let me just uh, add to what Raul said, which is that uh, Michelle Au, Senator, uh, Representative Au now, um, was on our show. We did, a, we did a show devoted to talking about guns in Georgia a week or so ago. And of course, she had something of w- what was sort of this um, semi-victory by even getting a committee hearing on a measure that she introduced to uh, lock guns up in the home, to insist that guns be locked up in the home. Of course, it didn't go anywhere. 
But the fact that they got a committee hearing was a breakthrough because normally those things are dead on arrival, don't even get to committee. Yeah, that uh, bill was called the Pediatric Safe Storage Act. And, you know, a bill with a name like that, you think would have a better chance that it did. Um, the uh, chair of that committee made sure that everybody knew up front that that wasn't really a hearing. It was a conversation, that there would be no vote and that it wouldn't be going anywhere, either out of that committee or any other committee. Um, and it reminded me, now that was a kind of very pre-planned, we do want to give you the chance to talk about what you want to talk about. But um, last year, there was a hearing that Republicans had called to um, talk about uh, violent crime in Atlanta, uh, brought all sorts of people from Atlanta law enforcement and community leaders um, together, activists together, um, uh, ostensibly to mm. kind of embarrass Atlanta, honestly, on this incredibly high level of violent crime. Um, at the time, I think it's gone down since then, but there's still a number of very troubling incidents um, around the city. So, you know, situation not over, but uh, the deputy police chief was brought in uh, to testify and they said, well, what can we do about this? And he said, could you please get people to lock their cars or to have a gun lock in their glove compartment? Because tons of guns in Atlanta are simply stolen out of unlocked cars. And that was really the end of the hearing. <laughs> they were like, whoa, whoa. No, I mean, let's don't get crazy. You know, let's don't talk about that. So, um, you know, there not only is there no effort to pass these bills when law enforcement, who um, everybody supports, says this is what we need, that's not what they're getting. So what's interesting about what Patricia just said is I've talked to so many Republican legislators, senators and reps, and they're like, oh, this city of Atlanta, my car always gets broken into. And I'm like, what's going on? And so when I started to talk to law enforcement about this, they said, yep, the deal is if you have an NRA sticker on your car, if you have a back the blue sticker on your car, if you have anything that's like pro 2A anything that gets targeted by folks who know you have a gun and they don't care about anything else. They're going to break in. They're going to steal your gun. Right. And then they sell it on the black market or they take it and they use it in a different crime. I mean, that is the problem. There is a significant, um, you know, black market issue in terms of guns that are being sold all over the country and coming from Georgia and particularly in Atlanta. And I was like, guys, can y'all just lock your lock your guns up? But, you know, they're like, oh, Atlanta is just awful. And I'm like, y'all are contributing to it when, when you're letting people steal firearms out of your cars. Well, and, and I know this I is wanna... an issue. That... Go ahead. So, so and an important thing to follow up on on. Um, that is, it's not just happening in Atlanta. Um, I've had sheriffs in Putnam County and Greene County tell me that they have criminals who come out to rural Georgia to break into vehicles to take guns. Okay, so leaving your gun in the if you're going to bring up anything that that could you know help the situation, that's one of them right there. It's not just an Atlanta issue; it's happening in rural Georgia where cars are being targeted. The possibility of guns being in there. 
Leo, a final word from you on this, and let me put it in a political context. The tragedies are of human nature, and and I'm glad we're talking about them in those terms, but they also are political. You still are a Republican, um, and I wonder if you feel that Republicans are going to, at a certain point, realize that it's possible they'll pay a price for letting guns be so freely available in Georgia and in so many of our states? First, let me say the price that we pay, Republican, Democrat, whatever, is the loss of life. And that's a horrible price to pay on this uh, issue because of reticence to have dialogue and reasonable discussions about a process towards reducing harm. And I like to frame things up in a way that presents opportunities for people to come to table to really discuss legislative action. And here in this conversation, we've already sort of addressed several that creates an open door. Uh, we we heard Patricia and Jan and Raul talk about what uh, police officers, um, you know, uh, uh, who what they say about gun controls. We know that conservatives and right leaning people tend to trust police officers and fire public firemen, uh, public safety people more. So that's a that's an opportunity to have that discussion with police officers and and people on the right to open the door for more discussion about a way to reduce harm when it comes to gun issues. So I I see that as a a great opportunity for us. The issue of locking up your gun, a very easy one. And then I think that the technology community needs to reinsert themselves and engage in the discussion about how we often talk about gun grabbing, but we can also talk about technology that can make guns unusable by people who steal them. And that technology exists and we need to discuss it. All right, thank you all for uh, that conversation. It's a very somber way to start out the week on Political Rewind, but it's a necessary conversation. Excuse me. Patricia, um, interesting developments in South Carolina and Nebraska uh, over the past week. The legislatures, the Republican-controlled legislatures of both states had abortion bills uh, uh, before them. Um, the uh, Nebraska bill would have established um, uh, a law had it passed, much like we have in Georgia. Basically, abortion would be illegal after six weeks. Here it's the so-called heartbeat uh, law. In South Carolina, they would virtually outlaw abortions entirely. Um, in both states, the measures failed, again, in Republican-controlled legislatures by one vote. So a narrow margin, we should point out that here in Georgia, when the heartbeat bill passed, it was by a similarly narrow uh, margin a few sessions ago. But so, Patricia, to put it in a political context, in Nebraska, Donald Trump in 2020 clobbered Joe Biden. He won 58% of the vote to Biden's 39%. In South Carolina, it's a little closer, but nevertheless, Trump won 55 to 43. So these are Republican states that elected a Republican president in 2020. And yet, Republicans are being a little cautious about these abortion bills. So I'll talk about the South Carolina bill in particular, because I think that one is is really instructive. Um, That is a... uh, near total abortion ban. It bans abortion at conception. The state Senate has already passed a six-week abortion ban. So 
there. So um, the Senate leader was pushing to do more and wanted this full abortion ban with narrow exceptions, but I mean, extremely narrow, um, rape <coughs> and incest only in the first trimester. Um, it was Republican women <coughs> who filibustered that bill because, and it wasn't about politics. They said, why do you keep pushing these bills when we tell you that they're not acceptable, particularly to women in South Carolina. Um, it, as you said, it was a, a really close margin, though, for an extremely, extremely conservative bill. Um, but I think that pushback had a lot less to do with, are we Democrats, are we Republicans? I think it had a lot to do with those women saying this is the men passing these literally don't know the basics of biology. And one Republican woman went through trimester by trimester what happens to a woman's body and the fetus as it's growing. And a lot of men were uncomfortable. And she said, well, I'm sorry if you're uncomfortable, but this is the reality. And you guys are not allowing for empathy or reality in this bill in particular. But the six-week ban, I do think, would pass if they if they brought that through both chambers. All right. Uh, thank you for setting up this conversation. We really are at a point when I've got to get to our first break of the show, but I know everybody wants to jump in and uh, make observations about what happened in those two states. And I want to ask about what happened in, to what extent did anyone in the Georgia legislature pay a price for voting on the uh, six-week abortion ban here? We'll do all of that and more after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Leo Smith, Jen Jordan, Raul Bali, and Patricia Murphy on today's Political Rewind. Um, Jen Jordan, I want to come to you for this conversation about what's happened to abortion bills in Republican states recently. Obviously, you made a mark that gained you national attention when you uh, argued vociferously against the uh, six-week abortion ban here in Georgia. So we can talk about it from a national point of political point of view, uh, but we should also talk about the fact that um, in the aftermath of, uh, you know, if Republicans right now around the country are suddenly worried about what can happen if they support dramatic abortion bans, Georgia is an example of a state where, I, and you'll tell me if I'm wrong, I don't think a whole lot changed after the abortion law passed and was signed by the governor here. Well, I think the thing that that happened was that a lot more women stepped up to run. Um, and I'll tell you, uh, Senator slash Representative Michelle Al is one of them as a physician. Yeah. So it's one of those things where sometimes it is about planting the seeds with respect to um, women wanting to get involved. And, and uh, you know, I'm just going to echo what Patricia said. This isn't a Republican or a Democratic issue. And what we're seeing in these Republican states where these Republican abortion bans are being, you know, pushed, um, it's not the Republican women. So we, we you know, 
I think that is is something we need to to clarify here. It really is not a right and left issue. It really does feel like it's women coming together saying, y'all, this isn't okay. And I think we didn't see that as much prior to the Dobbs decision, because I do think a lot of Republican women always thought, well, I can go along with this or, you know, not make a big fuss, because at the end of the day, we know it's going to be deemed unconstitutional. Now that we know that the states have the power to do what they're doing, and whether it is an outright ban or not, um, I think that's where we're starting to see Republican women step up. And as with respect to Georgia, I'll have to tell you, there's only so much you can do with a gerrymandered state. And in terms of the law itself, you know, it was put on ice for a long time. Um, Dobbs didn't come out until June, which would have been after you could qualify in primaries. Not not saying anything crazy would happen because you already had the districts. And to be quite frank, I think probably the, the, the biggest thing that we could look at is the fact that all of the Republicans that were running statewide, they did not want the word abortion or ban in their mouth until after the election. And so, you know, they made sure that it was kind of under uh, the radar because it hadn't been in effect long enough for it to have actually impacted the lives of women. Um, we'll see kind of how this all rolls out. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not going away because I have to tell you, you know, I may not have been successful, but the next generation might be. And younger people are much more activated and and they have a, a much clearer sense on this issue and um, and don't support these bans. Raul and then Leo. That's the reason the current case in the Georgia Supreme Court is so important. If this court overturns um, Georgia's six-week abortion ban, I'm not convinced the votes are there to repass it. And so that's gonna that's one interesting thing. Here's the other interesting thing. Looking ahead to next year, we talk about all the big elections in 2024. I expect there's going to be more attention on Supreme Court, state Supreme Courts, not just in Georgia, but around the country. That's the other thing that kind of looking down the road politically, I could also see coming next out of out of the court case here in Georgia, but also elsewhere. But what's interesting about that, Raul, is that the one person who really is up who who is probably the most vulnerable just because of experience, age, background is Justice Pinson, right? He clerked for uh, Justice Thomas. He was Solicitor General. He's incredibly young, all of that. Um, but he recused from, you know, ruling in the the abortion case before the Supreme Court. I think that tells us a lot that he wasn't going to touch that because, you know, I think we probably know where he is ideologically, and um, and and I don't think he wanted to become a target. I don't think he wanted his race to be just like the state of Washington's. Uh, Leo, you know, so much has been said that I, I think is on point about this issue um, when it comes to people sort of looking at the tea leaves as to how abortion impacts their uh, chances of winning and changing demographics where women are having more power in the vote uh, in Georgia, where minorities are having more power in the vote in Georgia. And the House Republicans would agree with you. I mean, they are communicating, you know, a platform of prioritizing education, combating inflation, fighting crime. They don't have 
abortion on what they're sending out as their public messaging. Uh, a woman, Republican leader, Senator Kay Kilpatrick and Michelle Law would have a very, very interesting conversation because Kay Kilpatrick also in the medical field does not ever sort of make abortion part of her main presentation. The legislation she sponsored doesn't really have much to do with abortion. So you can see that as a Republican conservative woman who is pro-life, she doesn't use that in her campaign communications. You know, a lot of what we're seeing national about the abortion issue and how Georgians are relating to it and how they will coalesce um, when it comes to electing somebody for a primary and then general campaign is related to how can we win back the presidency? And Ronna McDaniel, the head of the RNC, is leading that charge as she continues to appear on even, you know, what's considered liberal media stations to talk about the Republican problem with the abortion issue. And that's why you're seeing differences there. It's really focused on the narrow margins in Pennsylvania and um, Michigan. On that, I say in Michigan, I think Biden won by 2.6%. And the Republicans know they need to get those states back. And the abortion narrative is part of that. Just, just to put a period on, all, on this part of the discussion, Patricia, as long as we talk about South Carolina, we should point out that Congresswoman Nancy Mace in South Carolina has been telling her Republican colleagues in South Carolina and Washington, get off this issue already. It's going to lose us votes. Yes. And Nancy Mace has also spoken um, about the fact that she was raped as a teenager and uh, she has personal experience. She hasn't talked about um, whatever came out of that. But she does say, listen, there are things that happen that none of no one wants, no one would anticipate for themselves or their daughters or their wives. But that's reality. And you guys are ignoring reality, let alone electoral reality. Um, now, I will say that South Carolina did pass a six-week abortion ban, and that was ruled unconstitutional. Overturned. So that's yeah. why they're having to come back and try and pass it again. And to Raul's point, um, when it, when the, the court strikes it down, you just reset the entire process and the politics are very different the next time around, especially in Georgia. And that's going to be fascinating because there's no doubt we will have a ruling from the state Supreme Court well before the next session of the Georgia legislature. Um, Raul, uh, a a common complaint made by um, many people, Democrats, liberals who want Democrats to win, is that Republicans fight harder and dirtier. They're willing to uh, be much more outspoken, angry uh, in getting their positions across. Republicans do a better job than Democrats do. So with that in mind, uh, I want to play a little bit of the audio of a TV spot that uh, has been produced by a small pack, uh, bipartisan pack, a couple member, former members of the House Freedom Caucus, Conservative Freedom Caucus, and by the way, Marcus Flowers, who ran against Marjorie Taylor Greene in the 14th District as a Democrat. And they are now going after what they consider the far right in the House. And I just want to play a little of it because it's a startlingly bold and some would say a troubling message. Roe versus Wade has been overturned. And our government is held hostage by a band of politicians so extreme that only the word fascist describes them. The House will be in order. Marjorie Taylor Greene is the avatar of these extremists. 
If we want to be women who make choices, here's one thing you can choose. If you don't want to become pregnant right now, choose to not have sex. Her way is their way. Chaos, intolerance, fascism, it's America's new reality. They are banning the morning after pill. They are even denying services to victims of rape and incest. No exceptions. Extremists are taking over America. It's not just Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's the entire Green team. Well, Raul, that spot's going to appear on media markets uh, where those members of Congress live in the 14th District. Green, Lauren Boebert out in Colorado, Matt Gates in Florida. But it's, it's, it's a really hard-hitting message. Um, I'm not sure it's going to win people over. It's so tough-minded calling them fascists. But it is interesting that they're talking the way they, they are talking in such uh, angry terms. But I think it, it goes back to one of my favorite sayings, pick and choose your battles. Okay, Marjorie Taylor Greene was challenged in the Republican primary and still won with 70 percent of the vote. And I believe same margin in November and probably possibly going to be even a bigger margin if Donald Trump's at the top of the ballot. There are certain races in this state that are close. You know, is Marjorie Taylor Greene's race going to be that race? Uh, If I remember right, uh, Patricia probably knows better than I do. Uh, Marcus Flowers raised 15 to $20 $20 million somewhere in that neck of the woods, and and still Marjorie Taylor Greene got 70% of the vote. Where are you putting the – Lauren Boebert's race was a lot closer, if I remember right. So, yeah. you know, if you're going to talk about fights, whether it's Republican or Democrats, where you put that money, whether it's those close races on the northern arc of, of, of Atlanta or the statewide races, you know, if I remember right – uh, Senator Jordan, you had the closest statewide race, or maybe uh, uh, another can't. Well, there was always the biggest Senate. loser. Sen- yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thanks, for all for, thanks for reminding me this Monday morning. That makes me feel great. I think let's remind our listeners that Jen Jordan, of course, ran for uh, attorney general um, in, in this last uh, against an incumbent. So, uh, go ahead, uh, Jen. So I I was listening to that spot and I was like, well, who are they trying to persuade? I mean, you know, if you're talking about folks that are listening to NPR anyway, sure. Right. I mean, they use the word avatar and fascist and all this kind of junk. And I'm just like these folks, if they really are serious, if this is big money, I mean, they need they need to figure out in terms of the messaging for that particular district. You get a woman from that district who sounds like she's from that district and can talk about things in a way that people get. I'll tell you what, the big issue that folks should be talking about is contraception. Um, that matters. That matters to women all over this state. And so it's just one of those things where it just feels like somebody sitting in some ad studio in New York saying, oh, this is going to be hard hitting and we're going to go after them. (laughs) But at the end of the day, is this really moving the needle? And I don't think it is. Well, I think Patricia and then Leo, let me just add as we go forward, um, the New York Times was the organization that reported about this commercial. And I don't think there's a lot of money behind it right now, but the fact that it warranted a, a, a story in the newspaper of record, the New York Times in and of itself, uh, is uh, pretty meaningful. Patricia and then Leo. So I think we need a reality check on this. 
uh, honestly, this is ridiculous. Marjorie Taylor Greene <laughs> is not going to lose to a Democrat in that um, district because of a super PACs ad that's a five-figure buy um, uh, a year and a half before election. Um, I think there is in this country and uh, spending time in Washington and Chicago recently, it's not just Georgia. Um, there is what you know you can kind of call the rage industrial complex, um, consultants, media buyers, ad makers who know that if you put up on social media, this is your chance to beat Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, a nationwide audience. This is your chance to get rid of Lauren Boebert. Um, or conversely, um, this is your chance to have Hunter Biden's laptop investigated. Click here, you know, uh, $10 right now. Um, it raises so much money to get people riled up and upset no matter where the money goes. And the AJC has followed up with a lot of donors against Marjorie Taylor Greene from outside her district. And they said, I don't care if it doesn't work. I just, I just want to do something. Um, and so strategically, this is not, does not make any sense, but emotionally and financially for certain people who already have a lot of money, those consultants and ad makers, um, it's a no lose. Leo, uh, quick a uh, comments. Go yeah, ahead. quickly. I'll put a number on it. As of September 2022, Marcus Flower, who I'd never heard of until he sort of got some attention, attention as a Democratic uh, candidate don't, uh, darling, had raised $10 million. Even Tia Mitchell sort of asked questions about you know, the AJC reporter. You know how much of that money is actually going to anything but uh, political operatives? Okay, this is a way to continue to take advantage of his fundability um, against MTJ, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and continue to make money for political operatives. That's not work on creating a democratic republic that's strong and resilient. And I think we need to be clear about this is, to me, another money grab and not an effort to actually work on improving dialogue and uh, a peaceful democracy. I really think that those are such insightful comments from you all, because this happens on both sides of the aisle. Republicans do it as well as Democrats. And certainly uh, uh, there were Republicans who raised untold amounts of money around their the so-called rigged 2020 presidential election. And that money went into the pockets of a great many candidates and ad people and the like. Let's get our final break out of the way and back with more in a moment. Patricia Murphy, I have to say I saw a number of photographs of you and your colleagues, uh, all of you looking dazzling at the White House Correspondents' <laughs> Dinner Saturday night, you, Greg Bluestein, and Tia Mitchell. Um, and I'm sure it was a, it's always a fun evening, I, I, I have no doubt. But uh, it was interesting that President Biden uh, started the evening by defending the importance of a free and open press. And of course, on his mind is the arrest of Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter, now being held in a prison in uh, Russia as an alleged spy. Let's listen to a moment of what the president said. Jill, Kamala, Doug, and I, and members of our administration, are here to send a message to the country and, quite frankly, to the world. The free press is a pillar, maybe the pillar, of a free society, not the enemy. 
Thomas Jefferson wrote, you all know this quote, Thomas Jefferson wrote, we're left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government. I should not hesitate to prefer the latter. Patricia, I've been a journalist for like 40 years. I'm so old. And I have to say, when I hear things like that, it makes me so proud of our profession. But that's also a warning in many ways that the uh, credibility of the press is under fire more than ever before, not just here, but in other countries as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, speaking of credibility of the press, after Biden's speech, the head of the press association said, thank you so much. By the way, Mr. President, we need to hear from you more, you know, saying that uh, the President mm-hmm. Biden has not been particularly accessible to journalists. Um, so it was not an evening just about um, taking pictures and, you know, sitting next to famous people. Um, it had really serious undertones. And I thought one of the best speeches was not, was not even a speech. It was the comedy act from Roy Wood Jr., who's with The Daily Show. And his father was a local journalist in both Chicago and Birmingham, covered the civil rights movement and Black soldiers in Vietnam. And he talked about the strains on local journalism and the reality that most national news stories were local stories first and told that entire room full of national journalists why local journalism should matter to them as well. Well, Patricia, you set it up for me. Uh, Leo, here is uh, Roy Wood Jr. breaking from his comedy to talk about that. He starts by talking about the fact that the news that, unfortunately, for many people who can't afford it, most news is now behind a paywall. But he says, I understand that. You need the resources to do the work you do. But then he goes on and talks about exactly what Patricia said, uh, the importance of local media, too. Leo, listen, and we'll talk about it. The work you do as journalists is important. It's essential. It's dangerous. My father was an embedded reporter on the front lines with black platoons in Vietnam. He was in the South African Soweto riots. He covered that. Good journalism costs the people, but it also costs the journalists. It could even cost you your freedom. We talked about Evan of the Wall Street Journal sitting in a Russian prison as we speak on espionage charges. Evan and hundreds of journalists, they're imprisoned all over the world simply for doing their job. And we got to defend brave journalists. Most of the national stories in this country, at some point, were first a local story. And those stories are championed by reporters at outlets that many of them have now folded. And if we can't figure out a way to pay local reporters, then as a country, we're only left with that many more blind spots to where the bull is happening. Leo, and of course, that's a response to the fact that local newspapers and, and for that matter, local TV and radio news are drying up in many cities. There are news deserts across the country. Absolutely. And it's, it's so critically important. And, and, and I uh, want to sort of uh, give hat tip to Chauncey, um, who you often have on 
this with capital B um, for his work in creating more local news journalism coming from communities that generally don't have much local reporting, as well as the current down in South Georgia with, uh, I know that they have made efforts to actually encourage local journalism, creating interns at their in their operation from underrepresented populations. And oftentimes when we see bad legislation being implemented, we also see no local press um, because that happens in darkness and democracy dies in darkness to still a newspaper's headline. So this is really important. And I think it's important from all sides. And I'm so glad that we uh, heard that from uh, Roy Woods Jr., who I'd never heard of myself, um, but because I, I don't, I get up at 4.30 a.m. and I don't stay up to watch the Daily Show. But I think he, uh, it was great to hear some of his, his, uh, his satire. Raul, uh, uh, Leo, of course, talking about two panelists who are on the show frequently, Chancey Alcorn from Capital B and Margaret Coker, editor-in-chief of The Current down in Savannah. Raul? So, you know, in the last segment, it was brought up, people want to do something. Well, you know what? I'm going to tell, here's something people can do, okay? $5 a month to GPB, $5 or $5 a month to WABE Radio. <laughs> you know what? I WABE. <laughs> Look, WABE pays for my Atlanta Journal-Constitution subscription, but I have my own, and I pay the twelve ninety nine a month for an AJC. Look, right. get a get a subscription to your local paper or your hometown paper. If you want to make a difference, it gives us the funding to do our jobs. All right, I okay. Thank you, Raul. <laughs> I too have my own personal subscription to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Um, Leo, I promised you, you, I'm, you don't have much time, but you're working on this uh, with these group of citizens trying to uh, offer some guidance on the uh, planned Atlanta Police Training Center. At least give us 30, 40 seconds of what the work is, is about. You've only met, I think, once at this point. Correct. We met for the first time last week. It was the first time that Mayor Andre Dickens, mayor of Atlanta, got to address a group of stakeholders um, that are concerned about the uh, Public Safety Training Center, as well as how the programming will take place for the South River Forest area, which is almost 400 acres. There's a lot of misinformation, disinformation about this project, about the openness uh, of the mayor to having dialogue about how that 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 space will be purposed, and some of the elements there that have already been um, sort of talked about that are improvements: relocating the fire range, making sure EMT training is there, making sure that three one one, which is more of a citizen policing, community policing effort that's non policing uh, and its orientation is involved in the curriculum development. These things have to be discussed. And, and we need to encourage people to be open right. to engaging I, across difference for those conversations. Jen, 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 it's a great idea, but this is still a project under great, great stress with enormous controversy. Yeah, it is. I mean, but I think it's kind of what it goes back to what we were talking about, which is we really just. I mean, we've got some significant problems, obviously gun violence and the like. We need to sit down. We need to talk. We need to try to come up um, with solutions and we need to give each other a little bit of grace. All right. Thank you all for a wonderful conversation. Uh, Jen Jordan, Raul Bali, Leo Smith, and my partner from the AJC, Patricia Murphy. Thank you so much. 
for being with us today. We're back, of course, with a live show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care, stay healthy, and be kind to one another, okay? Bye, everybody.